Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Yeah, that's okay. Can we just give the Lord praise this morning? Man. It is right, right, right and good for his people to shout with joy. You can always do that in this house. Uh, I want to welcome you this morning. I uh, want to especially, I know John has already mentioned that, but uh, just especially college students tell you we are praying for you uh, in, this, uh, in this time of finals, and we will, we will miss you. Hurry back quickly uh, after your time. Uh, wherever it is that you're going, uh, travel safely, and, uh, and we are excited for you uh, to return. We are in this second weekend of Advent, Advent being the, the time of preparation, a time where we look to the coming of the Messiah. And we're going over just some classic themes of Advent over these next four weeks. Last week, we looked at the topic of hope. This week, we're going to look at the topic of peace. Uh, next week, we'll look at joy. And then on Christmas Eve, uh, we will conclude this series uh, by looking at love. Now, I want to make sure that you are in the loop in terms of what we're going to be doing for Christmas. On Christmas Eve, uh, which is the 24th of December, we will have our normal Sunday morning service, okay? So you will be here on Sunday morning. And then, just like Baptists used to know how to do, you will return on Sunday night. <laughs> Amen? You're going to return on Sunday night. We're going to have our, uh, our Christmas Eve service on Sunday night. So you get to be in the Lord's house together two times on Sunday. And uh, so we're looking forward uh, to that. But we're going to talk about the, the theme of peace this morning. We're going to look at the theme of peace and what we're exploring in this Advent series, because Advent means coming or arrival. And so what we're exploring in this series is, look, why does the arrival of the Messiah mean peace? What is it about the coming of the Messiah that establishes peace? Last week, we asked that very same question and we looked at the topic of hope. But why is it that the arrival of the Messiah is connected to peace? But in order to get to that place, in order to understand peace, we have to start in a far, uh, a far more uh, troubling place. We have to start with sort of a, an opposite reality, an opposite idea. So if you came just expecting the warm fuzzies of Christmas to start out this morning, here comes your rude awakening. In order to get to peace, we actually have to start with war. And what I want to uh, ask you this morning, and we often do this, is, is to try and ask you what it is that fills your imagination when you think of that word. So as you think of the word war, what is it that fills your imagination? I also want to ask you to remember maybe the time in your life where that word meant something deeper to you than just maybe something you read in the history books. I think if we were to really pause and reflect a little bit, we might all arrive maybe at a different answer to that question. There may be similarities around the room, but for the most part, we have an encounter with the word war that is more than just reading a story of warring nations some time ago. And I can tell you when that moment was uh, for me. I was seven years old. I grew up in Midland, Texas. You guys know that. I rep West Texas loud and proud all the time. And every time you roll your eyes, but that's all right. I'm going to keep on doing it. Um, but I grew up in, in Midland. And I, I remember when I, was, uh, when I was seven years old, um, I, I remember on, and I wouldn't have been able to remember the date. Uh, I, had to, I had to look this back up and make sure that my, that my time frame was right. But I remember 
Uh, there's this thing that we used to get called a newspaper. I'm specifically working with our younger generation here. And it was, this, it, was this, uh, it was this black and white document that you would flip through and it would tell you about all the, all the current events, all the things going on. And I remember that day we, we got the newspaper and in larger letters than I had ever seen anything on the newspaper before was the statement that the United States was at war. I think, the, I think the way the headline read was U.S. at war. And I'm telling you, it was a massive, like you see here, this is not the Midland Reporter Telegram. I could not find the front page of the Midland Reporter Telegram on Google, but I did find the Cincinnati Inquirer, which is really close to us, Cincinnati. And, uh, but it was similar to this. And I remember that feeling, as, even at seven years old, I saw the size of, of the, the print and that word war meant something kind of bone chilling to me in a way that I'd never experienced that before. As you guys know, that was January 17th, 1991. Many of you were not quite born, uh, but that was the day that the United States began Operation Desert Storm and we were officially uh, at war with Iraq. But I remember that word just sunk into my bones in a way that I'd never experienced it before. And you probably can tell a similar story where the word war meant something different to you maybe than it ever had before. And I think oftentimes these are the sorts of images that come to our mind when we think about war. We think about nations in conflict. And oftentimes I think we think about nations in conflict somewhere else. We think about war as something that is external. That's kind of our first go-to definition. But the reality is war is not just out there. The reality is that almost everywhere you look, there is war. If you'll Google the definition of war, one of the things that you're gonna find, the first definition is similar to what I just described. It's gonna describe nations in conflict, but that's not the only definition of the word war. If you go down to subsequent definitions, one of the things you're gonna find is uh, the definition that says a state of hostility between people or groups. War as defined as a state of hostility between people or groups. And if we were to take that definition, if that's our working definition of war, and then we were to examine our own lives, if we were to examine the lives of those around us, where would we find war? And I would suggest to you that if we use that definition, what we will find, what we will discover is that war is everywhere. War is raging on the inside of me and war is raging all around me. If I just do a brief survey of my life and the lives of those around me, I'm gonna hear story after story of hurt, betrayal, heartbreak, conflict. And Lord knows what I will find if I turn on the internet machine, right? Have you heard the term the Great War? Have you heard the term the Great War? The Great War is a, uh, a phrase or a title that we refer to historically to describe World War I. But I want to suggest to you this morning and and tell you that I think actually there are three great wars. 
And those three great wars have been raging a whole lot further back than World War I. The three great wars that I'm going to be referring to that we're gonna explore today are wars that have been raging ever since Genesis chapter three. I wanna talk to you about what those three great wars are this morning because again, if we don't understand war, we will not understand the coming of the Prince of Peace. And so to begin is the, is the great war. It's the great war that births the other two that we're gonna talk about this morning. But the first great war is man's war against God. Man's war against God was declared in Genesis chapter three when human beings conspired with uh, evil power, with the power of the serpent, and they rejected God's rule. They forsook the worship of Yahweh and instead turned inward towards themselves. And in that rejection of God's rule, man declared in his autonomy, declared war on who God is. The second great war, it is a war that comes from that war on God, but that second great war is man's war on himself. Man's war on himself. Now that may seem very strange. What do you mean man's war on himself? Well, here's the deal. When we reject God as Lord, when we reject his rule and reign in our lives, we are also, as a subsequent choice, we are rejecting God's God-given vocation for each one of us. Instead of saying, this is what I'm made for, this is my purpose, this is what it looks like to align with my purpose in creation, we've said no to God and we have declared ourselves as God of our own life. We now find meaning and purpose by charting our own course and making our own way. And in sin, that sometimes feels like a good thing to gratify what it is that we want and what we think is best. That might not feel like war. But I wanna tell you that when we do not align with God's purposes for our lives, we are degrading who God has created us to be. And so in our war on God, we have also declared war on ourselves. And the third great war is man's war with his brother. Man's war with his brother is an offshoot of the great war that we have declared on God. But listen to the words of Genesis chapter four. Now, if you're counting, Genesis four is pretty quick after Genesis three, isn't it? And that's where I said that this all begins. Genesis four, in the very next chapter, here's the words that we have. We have a description of two brothers at war with one another. It says, Cain spoke to his brother Abel in Genesis four, eight. And when they were in the field, Cain, listen to this phrase, I want you to grab this phrase, Cain rose up against his brother. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Do you see how man's war against God fuels his war against his brother. Cain rose up against his brother. 
Those, church, are the three great wars that have been raging since Genesis chapter three. And I just challenge you to go to any place at any time in the history of mankind, no matter the location, no matter the time, and I promise you what you will find is you will find those three great wars being fleshed out in the people that you are examining. In every culture, at every time, in every place since Genesis chapter three, those three wars have been raging. And what is it, church, that people at war long for? Say it, there it is. There's that warm, fuzzy Christmas feeling. What is it that people at war long for? Peace. Peace is the cry of those at war. People at war long most deeply for peace. Most of the time, though, when we talk about peace, We are speaking of just the absence of conflict. We want the fighting to stop, for example. We call that peace. We want the turmoil in our relationships to end, and we call that peace. And for those of us that that grew up listening to the Eagles, we've also been trained that peace is a feeling. (laughs) A few of you, all right. Come on, I threw an Eagles thing out there for you. (laughs) Right? And the problem with all of those definitions is they fall way, 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 way short of the biblical definition of peace. Biblical peace is deeper than a feeling and biblical peace is more than just the absence of conflict. In the Hebrew, the word for peace is my favorite Hebrew word, and it's the word shalom. It's pretty rare that you'll get an email from me. I don't send a ton of emails, but if you do, you'll see that word shalom at the bottom of my email. The Greek word for peace is arene. So shalom and arene are the two words in scripture, and there are others that feed into peace, but they're the two primary words where we arrive at our definition for peace, and both of those words mean wholeness or harmony. Wholeness and harmony are at the root of the biblical definition of peace. When the Bible describes peace, it's saying it's a a way of describing the way that things ought to be in all aspects. Those of you that have heard me preach through Genesis 1 and 2 in these moments where God says that things are good, something being good is a statement about it being as it ought to be. When God says that something is good, it is connected to this reality of shalom, of peace, meaning what God has created is the way that it ought to be. In the scriptures, this word peace is used to describe most often Complex items being made whole. So it's used when there's complex things, meaning things that have many parts that are functioning in wholeness with one another. A couple of different things you're gonna see as you look at this word in scripture is you're gonna see it used uh, to talk about stones without cracks. You're gonna see it referred to stone walls without holes. 
Stones without cracks, lots of different parts, but whole and functioning together. A wall without, without holes in it is a, is a complex system of different parts working together as a whole. You're going to hear this word applied to communities of people. Communities of people are complex because there's many different parts involved, but there's wholeness. There's no gaps or cracks. You'll also see this word uh, used about people, about individuals. Why? Because how many of you know that we are complex? Somebody bump your wife this morning and say, I told you so. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. You will not have a Merry Christmas. (laughs) Complex things being brought together in harmony as they were meant to be in wholeness. That's the biblical definition of peace. So to bring shalom means to make complete or restore things that are out of whack. (laughs) Kids, we told you that every week uh, during our Advent series, you're gonna have a Christmas ornament in your bags. And this week, you've got one uh, that, is, that looks like uh, a dove. Of course, in Scripture, the, the dove is associated with the Spirit, associated with peace, and it says the word peace on it. On the wings of the dove, there are the Scriptures that we read this morning and some questions uh, to discuss. So kids, feel free to decorate while I'm preaching. Decorate around that word uh, peace. And then parents, when you get home, this is a great jumping-off point to talk with your kids is to have a conversation as a family about what peace means and why the arrival of Jesus means peace. But typically, if you were to go to, let's just say that you were to invite a complete stranger, a total stranger to sit down with you for coffee, how long do you think it would take for you to convince that stranger of two of the three great wars? The two that I'm talking about are man's war with himself and man's war with his brother. I'm just gonna say, I don't think it would take you long to convince that stranger or to agree with that stranger, regardless of, of their politics, regardless of their, uh, of their rooting interests in football this weekend, regardless of where, how, how large the gaps are might be between you and many other things, I guarantee you that within a few short seconds, you could find harmony around the idea of two of these great wars. Most people agree that if we look inside ourselves, there's all sorts of war going on. That we are wrestling with, where do we find purpose? Where do we find direction? Where does life really come from? How do relationships work? We feel almost universally the tension inside of us of that war. I also don't think it would take you long with that stranger to come to agreement about another one of those great wars, which is man with his brother. Just look around. I think we could easily agree, yes, the world is in turmoil. Relationships are broken down. But the problem is not that we don't recognize two of those wars. The problem is that we don't recognize that two of them come from the first one. The problem is that we don't recognize that the two wars that we have universal agreement about are rooted in the one that we pay almost no attention to. And that is man's war against God. And so instead of turning to peace in the context of that war, we simply try to create peace in the other two places. And how many of you know 
that over and over and over and over again, we fail at bringing about true and lasting peace when all we do is address two of those great wars. But I wanna just tell you that scripture was written in the context of all three great wars. The writer of Isaiah, we read this morning, Brittany read uh, Isaiah chapter nine with us this morning. And I wanna take you back there because Isaiah chapter nine was written in the context of all three of those great wars. As you're turning there, I wanna please just remind you that if you don't have a copy of God's word uh, to walk out with that you can call your own this morning, please stop by our resource center. It's just right out these double doors and we would love to send you home with a copy of scripture. But listen, Isaiah chapter nine, verse six and seven was written in the context of those great wars. Now, what did we say earlier? What do people at war need? Peace. So here is the prophetic announcement of peace in the context of those three great wars and what it, be, what it is might surprise you. The announcement of peace is the announcement of a birth. It says in verse six, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Watch this in verse seven. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So into the context of those three great wars, the prophetic announcement of peace is the announcement of the birth of a king. The arrival of, of peace is connected to the arrival of a ruler, of a king. And the book of Isaiah tells us that that ruler that will be born will be the prince of peace. And the reign or the government that he will establish from the time of its establishing and into eternity, his government will increase and so will peace. So in the context of these three great wars, scripture promises Advent. In the book of Luke, in Luke's gospel chapter two, the words from Isaiah nine are picked up by the angel that is announcing to the shepherds the arrival of this king. In Luke chapter two, verse 10 it says, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, watch this phrase, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And so here the angel announces the arrival of the one promised in Isaiah. This is the one, this is the prince of peace. This is the one that scripture says will be injected into a, a world full of war. 
Peace will come on the shoulders of this infant. And here in Luke 2, the angel says, he has arrived. It is the Savior. It is the Messiah, the Lord of all. It is the baby in the manger that will bring peace to all three of those great wars. And from that point forward, from his arrival and going forward, he will establish his rule and his government will increase and peace will increase all the way into eternity. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says this, all authority has been given to me. It is Jesus who rules and reigns. All authority has been given to me. But here's the deal. If true peace was going to be realized, then man's war with God could not be ignored. And as I said before, this is the game we try to play. We try to ignore man's war with God and bring peace through other means. But Jesus did not turn a blind eye to man's war with God. If, that, if real shalom is going to take place, then that must be addressed. And so, in an act of perfect love, this king gave his very life so that the hostility that exists between man and God might come to an end. Listen, church, to the words of Romans chapter five, verse one. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Colossians chapter one, verse 19 through 23. Speaking of Jesus, it says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. That word reconcile is a, is a word about bringing into harmony those things which are in conflict. And what is it that he brought into harmony which existed in conflict, whether on earth or in heaven? All of creation in and through Jesus will be brought back into harmonious union with God. And he has made peace by the blood of his cross. Listen to this, it gets really personal. And you, put your name right there where it says you. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind. See, those are war words, alienated and hostile in mind. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And it is only in addressing our war with God that true shalom could be realized. But here's the deal. God doesn't neglect the other two wars either. God doesn't just come to solve the problem that we have with him. 
But it is in the solving of that problem that we have with him that peace can now flow into those other two great wars. Are you guys tracking with me? Just a quick amen to make sure you're here. All right. So he's not turning a blind eye to our war with ourself or our war with our brother, but it is in making peace with God, establishing peace with God, that God then intends for the shalom of heaven to now flow into our relationship with us. The way that we see ourselves, the way that we know ourselves and our relationship with our brother. Listen, it is because our war with God is over in and through Jesus that my war with myself can end. I don't have to ask the question anymore. Where does my life find meaning and purpose? That question has been answered for me in and through Jesus. I am free, church, from looking inward to myself and from looking to the things of the world to satisfy me. Gone are the days of fighting and clawing for significance based on what I can achieve and who knows me and what I can get. Those days are over. My identity and my significance is found in him. And it is in Messiah Jesus that we are restored to our proper image-bearing vocation. It is in Jesus that I am free to do what I was created to do, which is to bring goodness and justice and wisdom and beauty into the world through my abiding relationship with him, and then to sum up and reflect the praises of creation back to the one true God. That's what I was made for, and in and through Jesus, that's what I'm now free to do. No longer at war with myself trying to discover what that is, but in him being free to live as God created me to live. It is also in and through Christ Jesus and the reconciliation of my relationship with God that my war with my brother is over. Now, church, we need to hear this because there are still, and I'm just gonna say this, and let, and, but there are still far too much war within the church there is far too much warring brother against brother. But in Jesus, those battles are over. Listen to Ephesians chapter one, chapter two. And, and this is, look, if you just wanna look at what Paul's vision for unity because of what Jesus has done, just read the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter two, verse 14 says, for he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul is speaking here to the divide of Jew and Gentile and he's saying no more that in and through Jesus there is one new man. He says he's done this by verse 15 by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making, what's that word? Peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There is far too much hostility. If in Jesus hostility is supposed to be dead, then there is far too much hostility. Look here, it says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off. That's you and me. And peace to those 
who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Do you see that in verse 18? That's the restoration. Both having access in one spirit to the Father is that restoration of harmonious relationship with him. But do you see how Paul connects that directly to a restoration of harmonious relationship between one another? Do you see it? We cannot claim a restored relationship with God without also pursuing restored relationship with our brothers and sisters. Listen to Ephesians 4. He says it again. I think Paul's like me. He repeats himself a little bit. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Look at verse three, eager. Do you know what eager is? Do you know what the word eager is? Picture a kid on Christmas Eve. Come on, you can get that picture in your mind, right? That's eager. There's an anticipation. They want something. They know that something is coming. What is it that we're supposed to be eager for? Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now see, here's where the world has it wrong. The world believes that we are the ones that establish peace. We do not establish peace. We cannot establish peace Because peace, real, genuine, biblical peace is a gift that we receive because it's something that he can give. You with me? We don't don't create peace by wearing the same t-shirt and singing the same song. That's That's a shallow version of peace. But real peace is because men and women have been restored in their relationship with God and then been given the gift of belonging to one another in Christ Jesus. And this is why Paul says that you should be eager to, what's the word? Starts with an M, ends with aintain. You got it? You're good. You're sharp this morning eager to maintain what we've been given. You guys with me? Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. What that means is that the church ought to look to the peace that we have with one another receive it as a gift and go over my dead body. Is anybody going to mess this up in my house? (laughs) You with me? That's eager to maintain means it's so valuable. I'll fight you for it. We've kind of got that confused a little bit. (laughs) I won't go there though. For the Christian, for those of us that have just like, Carmel showed us this morning. For those of us that have given our lives to Jesus, for the forgiveness of sin, for new life in him, a life of peace is a life lived in the context of the end of the three great wars. By the grace of God and through faith in Jesus, we are enabled to live in the context of peace while awaiting the second advent, while awaiting his return, where his reign will be fully established and the peace that we now know will encompass 
all of creation. Until that day, until that day, we as the church, these little communities of people that claim the lordship of Jesus, that's what we are. This little odd, quirky little family that somehow belongs to one another set up as little outposts all over the nations of the world. We are outposts of peace in the context of a war still raging. I don't know if you know, church, but there are people around you that are still at war with God. You might be in the room this morning and still be at war with God. I don't know if you know this church, but there are people all around you every day that are still at war with themselves because they're at war with God. And I don't know if you see church, but we are still warring against one another because of our war with God. But here we sit, here you and I sit, belonging to Jesus through faith in him, having received new life and having seen in our life the three great wars come to an end and yet looking out into the surrounding area and realizing that war is still raging. But God has established you and I, these little outposts of peace as hope in the world. And the message that we were intended to bring, part of what God has assigned us to do is to go out into the world and in invite people to come in and to experience the peace that we have found at the end of those three great wars because of Messiah Jesus. That's the announcement of the gospel, that there is peace. World around us, the, the world around us does not have to be at war. The person that works next to you does not have to be at war. The nations do not have to rage. And in and through Jesus, you can know genuine and everlasting peace. And that's the announcement that you you and I have been given to make. We live in the context of hostile relationships all around us, but we have been given the job of announcing peace. Not as a theory, but as Carmel would tell you this morning, as an experienced reality. The peace that God has given her, the peace that God has given you and me is a real and eternal and lasting peace. So I want to ask you, as our band returns to, uh, to the stage, I want to ask you, just very simply, if peace describes your world, would you use the word peace to describe your world? And I don't mean, and please hear me clearly, I don't mean that that means the absence of challenge because that is not the biblical definition. There we are. It's good to have you guys back. <laughs> Listen, it does not mean that there are not challenges and biblical peace does not promise that we will never experience challenge. But biblical peace is that even in the midst of challenge and difficulty, peace is unwavering. So would you describe your life as having peace? Would you describe your relationship with God as being one of peaceful harmony? Or are you at war with God? How would you describe 
Your relationship with you. Are you warring against yourself, refusing to live in the identity that God has given you? Refusing to receive and walk in who you are in Christ? And then what about your relationships with one another? I think this is one of the reasons why Paul is adamant that we don't even partake in communion if we have war against our brother. Are you warring against your brother, forgetting that in Jesus, even those who would be called our enemies are to be recipients of our love? And I think as we stand and sing this morning, and I would sure invite you to do so, I think Advent, stand, I'm sorry, that wasn't clear. Why don't you go ahead and get up? <laughs> I think more than anything, the first thing that we ought to do is we ought to give thanks for the gift of peace that we've been given. I think our song ought to be one of thanksgiving that there is a peace that we now live in that we could never have established for ourselves, but that he has given us as a gift of his grace. But I think Advent is also a reminder that our task as Christians is to carry out into our world a place where those three wars are still raging, an announcement of peace in the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus. And I don't know where you find yourself this morning in the context of those three wars. I, don't, I have no idea where, uh, where your life lands right now and how you would describe yourself. But I would say this, that if you are at war with God, that can come to an end today. That if you will repent and turn away from sin, which is selfishness, it's a failure to worship God and say, no more with me being God of my own life. I wanna put that down. I wanna lay that down and I wanna surrender my life to Jesus. Then your war with God can end today. There can be peace and harmony in your relationship with God in and through faith in Messiah Jesus. He has given himself for us that we might experience the end of hostility with God. And if that's you this morning, I would highly encourage you to tap somebody next to you and just go, man, I just need to pray and surrender my life to Jesus. Or you can make your way to the back where one of our prayer partners would be happy uh, to walk that through with you. Uh, but wherever you find yourself, look, if you are at war with somebody in this room, end it today. Move across the room, repent of our pride, of our selfishness, ask for forgiveness, experience healing today. Whatever it is that you feel like the Spirit is prompting you to do this morning, I just wanna encourage you to be obedient, but know that in Messiah Jesus, in his coming, we have peace, amen? Amen. Lord, we pray that you would help us by the power of your Spirit to respond to your word. God, we thank you that you have given us a peace that we could not have ever received on our own. We could have never established the war was too deep. But God, you have made a way for us. Where there was no way, you have made a way. And in and through Jesus, through our faith in him, you have given us as a gift of your grace the end of all war. And you have established peace with you through the blood of the cross. 
And we thank you for that. God, help us by the power of your spirit to be people of peace. Help this place to be an outpost of peace in this community where you have established us. God, we pray that as people walk in the doors, that they would recognize that this is a place of peace and harmony. And God, we pray that that would be our witness in the community. In Jesus' name, amen.